questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. What do Christian spiritual formation, interpersonal neurobiology, and vocational creativity have in common? Welcome to the program. This is the Restoring the Soul podcast, and today I am speaking with Kurt Thompson, M.D., who will explain the intersection of interpersonal neurobiology, Christian spiritual formation, and vocational creativity. Kurt is a psychiatrist in private practice in Falls Church, Virginia, and he's the founder of Being Known LLC and the Center for Being Known, which is an organization that develops resources to help equip leaders in these very topics. Kurt is an author who has written two very profound deep books that you will want to check out. He's the author of Anatomy of the Soul, which is a deep exploration of spirituality and neuroscience, specifically this idea of interpersonal neurobiology. He's also the author of The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. And if you have been a fan of or been touched by the work of Brene Brown around shame, this is all that plus the neurobiological reality attached to shame. So you'll want to check that book out as well. There's a whole lot more I could tell you about, Kurt. We unpack some of that in part one. But as I do the introduction for part two, I'll tell you more about him and his background. So right now, let's jump into this conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson. Dr. Kurt Thompson, welcome uh, to the Restoring the Soul podcast. I'm so excited uh, to share a conversation with you today. Well, thank you, Michael. It's a delight to be here. We have uh, had uh, multiple attempts on my end to speak with you and interview you, and that's just not worked out. Um, but but I want to say something that will sound to listeners like uh, a bombastic statement, but I'm very being very intentional as I say this. I, I, I've been aware of your book, Anatomy of the Soul, for a couple of years now, and recently really dug deep into it, and then just in the last few days did a heavy skimming. And it's a book that has taken my breath away. Mm. And wow. the reason for that is that there is sub, such a depth of integration of bringing so many different topics together in a way that for me as a psychotherapist and professor and spiritual director, the deepest questions that people are asking, I feel like you've brought together answers, including the foundational answers of scripture in a way that's just not been done through a Christian lens. Well, I'm, I'm uh, deeply touched, Michael. I thank you for saying those uh, words. I, I, um, I'm going to, as I'd like to say, I'm, uh, I want to take them and I want to ingest them and digest them and metabolize them. Uh, I, I hope, um, that, uh, the work of the book, um, and the one that followed it, uh, can continue to be used, um, to, um, help us, you know, realize and more integrated lives, which I, we would say, I mean, that's a, uh, that word integration has a particular meaning in, in our field of interpersonal neurobiology. But I, I would say that that's what Jesus is explicitly referring to when he talks about, therefore, be perfect, be whole, 
be integrated, even as your father in heaven, even as this Trinitarian God uh, is also integrated, is also whole and so forth. So thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. And so already you're using terms that I just, I really want to jump in. So I'm so excited, but let me just start a little bit about you. What led you out of all the potential fields and specialties within medicine, what led you to choose to become a psychiatrist? I'll try to be brief about this, Michael. Um, uh, The first thing I would say is that I probably went to medical school against my intuition at the time. Uh, I probably went uh, because it was the thing that I thought one was supposed to do uh, when you come out of college and you get into medical school and you don't have anything else to do, but you really think that that sounds like a cool thing to do. Um, I spent the first two years in med school really not very happy about being there, um, but still trying to work to do my studies and so forth, but not finding very much joy in that. And as it turned out, um, you know, psychiatry, when I was in the first two years of medical school, psychiatry to me was only one of those half dozen or more basic medical school rotations you were going to have to go through, the fundamental uh, medical subspecialties that you were going to have to go through uh, before you made your decision about what you were going to do. I really didn't have any idea that what I was going to do, but psychiatry was not on my list. When I then eventually did encounter psychiatry, uh, as I now say, I, I think um, I don't think I found psychiatry. I think psychiatry found me, and uh, it was a place where uh, the things that I could do uh, with some degree of of skill in terms of, you know, the things that you learn and know and things you know about science uh, came together with what turned out to be my awareness for my, my passion for understanding the question, like, or for exploring, like, why do we do what we do uh, as human beings? And how does uh, being a believer really uh, speak into that question? I think my, my next uh, challenge as I became aware that psychiatry was something I was really going to pursue. Um, at the time, my next challenge was, how do you actually do this if you're a follower of Jesus? Um, there were lots of models for being a Christian and being in a primary care profession of medicine, being family practitioners, being pediatricians, being OBGYN docs, even surgeons. Um, but there weren't a lot of working models for what it means to be a Christian and be a psychiatrist. And uh, I was at a conference uh, in my fourth year of medical school. Th- I'm sorry, third year of medical school. And um, I was in a workshop that was being led by the person who at the time was the director of medical education at Emory University. And she was a pediatrician. And uh, afterwards, I spoke to her about my travail. And she said that, uh, you know, if she had not been a pediatrician, she, she would have been a psychiatrist. She said, look, the only reason that we don't have models is because somebody hasn't come up with one yet. And so uh, I felt like those, those two things, first encountering psychiatry and then having this conversation uh, with this physician, uh, really looking back on it was really God coming to find me and gently but firmly kind of moving me in a direction uh, that as it's turned out, as I tell people, I don't deserve my life. And I certainly don't, uh, can't believe I get paid to do what I do. Um, I, I can't imagine doing anything vocationally that would give me any more joy. And then I think, you know, 15 years ago, 14, 15 years ago, when I first ran into Dan Siegel's work in interpersonal neurobiology, I think that's when, uh, the wheels started to turn even in a, even in a fresher way 
um, which has uh, led to uh, the book that you cited and uh, the work that now is kind of emerging in our practice. That is fascinating. And it, it seems so often the case when, when someone discovers that zone of vocation where you can't imagine doing anything else, that it really is about being found by the vocation instead of you finding it, as you said. Yeah, no, it really is true, which makes it, you know, it makes it all the more humbling. I mean, just about every day you, you get done with your day and not every day is a day that you were really happy about all the events that took place. But um, at the end of the day, uh, you're really aware that this is really a gift. And uh, uh, I, I couldn't have made this up. Um, you know, lots of people have burned lots of energy uh, to create opportunities for me to do what I do. Um, and I'm, I'm just um, I, I'm a grateful recipient of the opportunities to do the work that I do. And uh, that's led, led even to this conversation that we're having right now. I mean, I'm I love having these conversations, but, uh, you know, this is something that is a gift. and I, I, I just want to steward it well. So when people think of a psychiatrist and, you know, in the field, we both know that people confuse words like psychologist, psychiatrist. But as you talked about medical school, obviously you went on to become a physician, an MD, but people don't realize that a psychiatrist, uh, you study what, one or two full years of neurology. Is that correct? Well, the, the usually most uh, medical school programs uh, would have you doing in your first two years, you're doing, you know, your fundamental medical school work. And then um, after that, you're doing clinical work in your in your third and your fourth year of medical school. So you're doing those four years of medical school education that everybody else does. And then you move on to a four year residency training program in psychiatry. Uh, and depending upon the program, you might have anywhere from you know, nine to 12 months of medical training in particular. So you're doing, including neurology, you're doing a lot of different things that uh, most other physicians are doing over the course of their training before you then move more explicitly over the last anywhere from three to maybe three and a half years of that four-year training period explicitly into the realm of uh, psychiatric work. Um, although that's never apart from kind of keeping your ear to the rail about how patients are presenting as far as their psychological experience is concerned, how that's presenting in light of their uh, medical presentation as well. Yeah. And so especially modern psychiatry has evolved much more from maybe the oldest images of Sigmund Freud sitting with the patients back to him in a clipboard and free association to, to then maybe the caricature that all psychiatrists do is write prescriptions but that you've, you've gone a very different direction. And I think what I'd want people just to, to have a lot of clarity about is that as a psychiatrist, you're more than just somebody who knows mental health theories and happens to be a doctor, but you really are a scientist. And so you, you look at a person through this very holistic, scriptural lens through a physician caregiving lens, but, the, but what you've done in your books, and especially in Anatomy of the Soul, is to bring that scientific lens to looking at a person holistically. Would you say that's uh, accurate? Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's really, um, that's really uh, beautifully articulated. I think that, you know, what we are trying, when I say we, uh, myself, um, what I, the work I try to do, the work that we, where we train our clinicians, whether they're uh, psychiatrists or non-medical clinicians, you know, the psychotherapists that work in our practice, whether I'm training other therapists in different practices across the country, 
Um, what we're really uh, trying to emphasize is that uh, paying attention to the whole person is really crucial. One of the things that I think uh, training from medical school and neuropsychiatry does is that it does really give us uh, a way of thinking about and paying attention to uh, multiple different ways that the neurological system is working. And so um, one feels familiar with how the brain works, how the neurological system works, and how that interplays with other parts of your uh, physical experience. So we know, for instance, now that when one looks at the cardiac, when you look at your uh, cardiac uh, makeup, that the neural networks that are related to what happens when people are feeling a myocardial infarction, when they are having heart pain, that those neural networks sit very closely to other networks in the brain that we uh, activate when we feel the pain of what we would call a broken heart. And so, you know, you, you'd always wonder, like, well, why, do, why have people for centuries said, oh, my, my heart's broken? Why don't they say, oh, like, my stomach is broken? Oh, my brain is broken? Oh, my face is broken? No, because as it turns out, now we're seeing that there are these deep connections between our neural networks, our brain's activity, and every other element of the body, which medical school has helped you know, familiarize me with. And so I think that's one thing that's been really, really helpful. I think you point out something that's really important, and that is that psychiatry was kind of born into a world with, with Sigmund Freud, who many people don't know, originally trained as a neurologist. Right, and, right. And, and many people don't know that. Um, and what he was trying to do, I mean, doing the best he could, given the limits of technology at the time, what he was trying to do was trying to, like, make up a story, make up a way to understand what was going on in the brain. But he was only able to use metaphors and imagery and so forth that could, you know, uh, maybe give him a handle on how things worked. I think that he would have predicted and have foreseen that we now – uh, live and work in an age in which some of the technology that we have, whether it's through PET scans or SPEC scans or fMRIs, that the, you know these things that can take pictures and give us an idea about the brain's metabolism, uh, what's lighting up in the brain when certain things are taking place in our experience, that uh, Freud would have looked forward to that day and uh, would look forward to it um, all with the anticipation and expectation that, that we would have almost expected that to be the case. What's so exciting for me is that these things that we are now learning about, about the way the brain works and its relationship to what we sense, image, feel, think, and behave, and what it's related to in terms of our interpersonal interactions, how our interpersonal interactions change our neural firing patterns, for instance, how this is all deeply consistent with, deeply uh, resonant with, and energizing of the entire biblical narrative, but most particularly beginning in the, in, in the, uh, you know, the beginnings of our anthropology in those first three and four chapters of Genesis. And it's so fascinating to me from a historical perspective, Kurt, that one might expect archaeology or contextual criticism or, you know, some new emergent hermeneutic or something to highlight and to bring together all of these these truths of our origin and our design. But but especially in the last what decade and a half uh, with this explosion of the understanding of 
uh, neuroscience, and I want you to jump into the idea of interpersonal neurobiology in just a moment. But all of this is that it's physics and science and, and medicine that's illuminating what God has said through the scriptures is true. Well, you, yeah, you're right. And Michael, you point out something that, that, that strikes me, you know, in the 14th chapter of the book of Acts, Paul is talking to the Lycosians and he's reminding them that even though they've had all these other gods, the God of the Jewish heritage, the God of Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, as Paul says, this God did not leave himself without a witness in the 17th verse. He speaks to them and says, like, he sent you rain. He sent you sunshine. He sent you all kinds of evidence. He does not leave himself without a witness. And now in this day, he sends us Jesus. And, you know, we we live in a cultural milieu, I think, in which, uh, especially in Western Christianity and especially in North America, so much of the metaphors and motifs that were kind of, you know, standard operating procedure for people of Christian faith have now become rather dulled to the senses of the vast majority of the population. People no longer even have much of a sense of what the symbol of a cross might be, uh, let alone like what a church is supposed to be. And they get their understanding of what it means to be a Christian, you know, through um, some recent, uh, you know, social media blitz about the latest uh, problem that some preacher has had falling out of sorts because of some sexual indiscretion. I mean, this is how people come to understand what Christianity is. But into that space steps these discoveries of neuroscience, And what I invite people to consider is that at a time when for many people, even for people within the church, even people outside the church, people who are not people of faith, but who desperately uh, are longing for a world of goodness and beauty, into this space, I would say God does not leave himself without a witness. And he brings to our table evidence of neuroscience, evidence of attachment relationship research, that speaks to the very tenets of the biblical story and I think is really giving people a new and fresh way to literally make sense of what the gospel has been saying for low these past 2,000 years. Yeah, it's so compelling. Um, And so good, good segue here. You mentioned in our conversation before we started recording Dr. Dan Siegel, and he is a giant uh, in the field of psychiatry and I guess considered by many to be one of the emergent or pioneer people in, in the popular age with interpersonal neurobiology. But I feel a little bit like uh, the non-Christian who was reading philosophy and theology and all of these spiritual writers and then suddenly stumbled upon the Bible. Uh, for the last two or three years, I've been deeply immersed in the, the writings and the uh, material on interpersonal neurobiology. And then suddenly I, I stumbled upon and made time to read your book. And I, and I felt like I found the Bible where you took all of the secular material that just resonated so deeply with me and made so much sense. And I, and I kind of began to make connections about how this works in my work. And then your sense of integrating in a very deep integrated way, all of these truths. And it just feels, uh, I I almost felt as I read your book, like your book was evangelistic, uh, that it was preaching a good news, but that it wasn't 
religiously manipulative. It was just putting something out there. And and, and people may be going, well, Michael, you sound like a, a kid in a candy shop. And I just want to say I am uh, because it's, 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 it's also really paralleling the journey that I've been on personally, where it just makes so much sense. Yeah. So um, will, you, will you just dive in and give us a, a basic definition of what is this interpersonal neurobiology? We, we like to say that, you know, there are lots of people in different spheres of scientific study, different fields that all have a that, that have a stake in having a sense of what around the question of like, what is the mind or a stake in kind of discovering um, what does it mean to really understand what healthy development, uh, human development looks like. What does it mean for the human mind to flourish? And uh, you're right to say that Dan Siegel is, I think, the, you know, the point of the spear of all this. I mean, his, uh, he's the one who coined this phrase, interpersonal neurobiology. And we like to describe it as uh, more of an interdisciplinary view of human experience, and it is, a, it is a view that draws on multiple different resources of science, multiple different branches of science, to find those elements that are consistent across various perspectives, those elements that they have in common. So we're taking different elements from bench science, for instance, if you're working in the lab, if you're psychoanalysis, if you're working uh, in attachment research, if you're working as a child psychiatrist, um, if you're working in neuroscience, studying the development of the brain, those kinds of things, all those different fields, bringing them together to ask the question, what do they have in common? And from those various perspectives, how do we create a framework for understanding the development of our subjective and interpersonal lives? And this, uh, this collective way of bringing together these consilient or these common elements is really that process. So we, we do a lot of work in paying attention to any new development uh, in any field of science. So it's not just science that has to do with mental activity. We, we pay attention to physics. We pay attention to chemistry. We pay attention uh, to a range of different things that are helping us learn more and more about the way the mind works. I'm reminded uh, then, though, about what we read in Paul's letter to the church at Rome when he said, from the beginning, the creation has shown mankind the things of God's nature and his power. From the beginning, we've seen through the lens of creation the nature of God and the power of God. And what I'm seeing with interpersonal neurobiology is that this is yet one more way in which the things that we are discovering now in this collective format that are telling us things about God's nature and God's power. And uh, it's, it's been a joy to uh, really think about these things because there are just multiple different ways in which the biblical narrative itself, I think, is even reflecting the very science that, uh, that we're discovering. Wow, that that is so good. Um, as you quote Paul from Romans about how creation uh, makes these things of God known, my first response was, "Well, that, that's not the human body that he's talking about." <laughs> but you know, I think about the Rocky Mountains and the oceans, and you know, 
the, the brilliance of a diamond. And then I thought, no, wait, it is the human body. We are, I am, you are the creation. And then I thought, well, I wonder if a human being is like a living text then. Mm. That mm-hmm. this is the Bible is a, a text that reveals God. All of creation, including the human body and the human brain, is a kind of text. Well, indeed, and I think that um, I think that's a I think that's a lovely way of putting it because uh, texts typically uh, you know they can do any number of different things, but um, the Bible as a text, we would say, one of its major features as a literary text is that it tells a story. Um, it doesn't just give us instruction. It doesn't just make give us lists of events and people. It is trying to tell a story. And I think in the same way, that is exactly what we are trying to do. We are trying to tell the story of our lives. We desperately want our stories to be known by others, despite the fact that we often are not really aware that that's what we're trying to accomplish. And in that same way, we reflect a story in the Bible of a God who also very, very passionately and deeply wants to be known by us. I would suggest that it's not just that God wants us to know him. I would suggest that God wants to be known by us. He wants to have the experience of seeing us, seeing him in this context of relationship. And he then says, let us make mankind in our image, this plurality in Genesis chapter one, where in which he then creates us as people who deeply want to be known. Our challenge, of course, is that we spend a lot of time wanting to know things because in our world from the beginning, knowledge is power. And as long as I, the more I can know, the more power I can have, the more power I can have, the less I then need to depend upon you, the less I have to trust and the less likely you are to burn me. And yet we have a God who eventually comes in Jesus who says, I'm willing to do anything it takes to be known by you and to have you have the experience of being known by me, even if it kills me to do it. And that's, that's, that's you know, we, we say that nowadays, we like uh, one of my uh, things that I say to folks is I, my, uh, I think what my calling is to preach the gospel in the language of neuroscience. And I think, neuro, and I think, I think neuroscience is telling us the same story that the Bible is. It's just using different language. Wow. You know, that's fascinating that you say that because I've said to friends to my knowledge, Dan Siegel is not a believer, but when he talks about the brain and interpersonal neurobiology, I feel like he's preaching the gospel yeah, um, absolutely. because he's such a compassionate man and there's such a presence about him. Um, and uh, the, the concepts themselves, it, it makes me go, well, this is what God is like. And of, of course that resonates with me. So if, if you can talk about some of the big ideas or some of the, the implications of this idea of interpersonal neurobiology so that listeners can start to kind of put some flesh on the, the skeleton that you just described. Sure. Um, one of the big ideas would be uh, the notion of what is the mind? That's, that's, the, that's the first question. We, we like, you know, if you, if you go to see your orthopedic surgeon, you'd like to believe that they know a thing or two about bones, about the, you know, that structure that we walk around with. Uh, we'd like to know that if we are uh, going to see a mental health provider, that they actually have some kind of sense of like what the mind actually is. And if we know what it is, then what does it mean for that mind to flourish? 
we don't all get those kinds of definitions uh, or that working understanding when we're in our, even our professional training. One of the things that interpersonal neurobiology seeks to do is to give us some working definitions about those things. And one of the big ticket items for us would be that the notion of the mind is that it is this, uh, not, it's not just limited to our brain, it's embodied and relational process, first of all, right, that my mind includes my entire body, not just my brain, because I know that when I'm anxious, for instance, I feel that anxiety in my stomach or my hand. So I have to pay attention to the role that my body plays in my mind. Again, to wit, Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? For you've been bought with a price. This in 1 Corinthians, this notion that if I'm not paying attention to my body, there are certain elements of my mind and therefore what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell me that I'm also perhaps missing. But the mind is not just embodied, the mind is also relational. I necessarily need the interactions relationally with other people's minds in order for me to grow and mature and to flourish. When a newborn comes into the world, probably anywhere only from about 15 to 25% of her neurons in her brain are ready to go to do the thing that they're ready to do. Most of the rest of that little child's brain, in order for it to eventually do what it's meant to do, needs the interaction with another person in order for those neurons to start to fire and to connect with one another, whether those are physical things that they need in order to develop, or more importantly, interpersonal and relational and emotional uh, development that they have to undergo. If I don't have other minds around me that are attuning to me, that development won't take place, which, of course, this also reflects what we read in the biblical narrative in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. First of all, that we hear a God who says, let us make mankind in our image. This sense that we are relational beings. To be like God is to be relational. I'm not just a single human being made in God's image. I am a human made in God's image as I am relating to other people. And then we see later in the second chapter, this notion that it's not good for man to be alone. And our brains, our minds, we know this, our souls know this deep within us, that hell is really not just about suffering. It's about being alone, ultimately. And so we want to ask the question, what does it mean for the mind to flourish? Well, one thing is for us to be connected to other people. And we need to be connected while we are paying attention to what our physical embodied minds are telling us. But that part of our mind that is both embodied and relational is also emerging, meaning I'd like to know everything there is to know about my mind, but there's a lot about my mind that I can't know when I'm six, that I will know more when I'm 16 and know a lot more when I'm 55, but that is always emerging, always learning, always growing. But that emergent process, once again, requires the presence of other people. And in fact, there are things about myself that will not emerge and I will not be able to become aware of unless I see them in your eyes, hear them in your voice, come to understand them because you reveal me to me. And this speaks then critically to this notion of what we mean by what it means to be known by others. In the scientific field of interpersonal neurobiology particularly, we don't talk about this, but in the work that I do, we really 
try to ask this question, what does it mean for us to be known? When Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, there are those who think they know in ways that they do not know, but the person who loves God is known by God. He doesn't say the person who loves God knows God. Not that that's not true, but his point being that to love God means I need to love that person who has given me the opportunity to be known by him. For me to know something requires the activation of and the implementation of certain parts of my brain that usually much more involve the left hemisphere, my knowing, analytical, logical, controlling brain. But to be known by someone else means that I'm going to let them ask me questions. I'm going to let them see parts of me. I'm going to tell them parts of my story. I'm going to, in fact, put myself in a position of vulnerability that enables me to discover parts of myself by being known to other people. I'm going to be known by this other, and the very act of being known in a space in which I'm not going to be shamed, which is crucial, to be known in that space in which I am not going to be shamed leads to great healing and liberation. And this then reflects that sentence at the end of Genesis chapter 2 when we read that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. This sense that they were vulnerable and on the precipice of great creativity because they needed each other in their vulnerability And shame was not part of the conversation at that time, that they, in their vulnerability, were going to be able to be known deeply while not allowing shame to be part of the conversation. And so we see that flourishing of the mind includes all of these things that we've been talking about so far, not least of which having to do with the way our brains operate neurobiologically, all of that embodied biochemical stuff going on not just in our head, but throughout our bodies, but how those biochemical changes also create biochemical changes in other people as we are relating with them. And so we see even from the position of physics that what we feel, for instance, as I'm having a conversation with someone else, when they experience me and I experience them, we change the nature of how their very neural networks are structured by virtue of creating an opportunity for them to be known and loved by us, something that we think that comes to its zenith in the coming of Jesus, in the coming of God being with us in the Gospels. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. 